Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Larry. He is the co-founder of Gay Men's Health Crisis in New York City and the author of multiple books, including Confessions of a Jewish Wagnerite, Being Gay and Jewish in America. I thought that book title kind of summed up a lot of what he's here to talk about today, but he'll talk about other books, other great things in his life. So I'm excited he's here today. So Larry, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? (laughs) Well, hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm a little, I've never done anything quite like this. It's a little, I'm a little nervous. Um, But I listened to your podcast from the other day with Lee about uh, his struggles in trying to uh, be authentic, be who he really is and true to himself in a world and in situations where who he really feels himself to be and, 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 uh, and, and the ways he needs to express himself are not uh accepted widely accepted and you know it's been a struggle for him he he talks about his loneliness in uh trying to kind of be himself and and you know become himself and that's something that i think probably many of the people or even most of them on your on these podcasts of yours uh relate to um strongly and and i certainly do and did I was born in the, um, is, is central Georgia, the Bible belt. I always say the Bible belt, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that's exactly correct, but I was born in the mid 1940s in, uh, in central Georgia. And I was born, uh, well, I, I was Jewish and queer. Now in those days, the, the, there was no even concept of being queer, of being gay. Uh, Those were not even terms that you ever heard. Um, There was no context for understanding who I was in that way. Uh, I was, uh, something was different, but it would be many years, you know, uh, before I would be able to even begin to come to grips with that. Being Jewish, on the other hand, that was something that was kind of, scary uh from early on even though uh there actually is quite a history of jews in the south and in our town there were um a number of um of uh, you know there were there was a there was a significant jewish community and there was a temple and a, a shul an orthodox uh synagogue and um you know but um anti-semitism is kind of everywhere and especially if you're a youngster you know you 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 really kind of experience it and i certainly did so that minority identity was very kind of frightening to me uh i wouldn't get into fights i mean it was you know uh so um i actually did a lot of uh i struggled a lot to uh suppress that identity actually i mean i knew I was Jewish, you know, but I didn't, it's not something that I kind of 
put out there for people to deal with, uh, including myself. I wanted to do everything I could to just be mainstream, to fit in, you know. I think this is a common experience with minority people of all kinds. If there's an easier way to fit in, we kind of do that. And I had, um, you know, I think I grew up internalizing a lot of anti-Semitism. I just, I just sort of saw myself as an ordinary, regular person. I fit in. Uh, I mean, I remember an early incident. I was a little boy, and. Uh, there was a there was a kind of a abandoned house down the street, an old house, and there was a sign in the front of it that said, uh, "No dogs or Jews allowed." Well, uh, the boys I played with, nobody they didn't really say anything, so we all just went there, and I didn't make an issue of it. I just thought, "Well, I'm not. Nobody's calling me out for this, so I'm just going to keep it low key." Well, I didn't realize that those kinds of reactions would be the basis of more serious and significant ones. Uh, and there's a lot. There's a lot of ground to cover, so I don't want to get too lost in which I, <laughs> can be very tangential. My writing is also tangential, by the way, so and discursive. The, uh, you know, so but um, I the, I became an opera person. That was like one of the, that was like the first really great big love of my life. I absolutely fell madly in love with opera. And within opera, I fell especially in love with one of opera's greatest composers, Richard Wagner, uh, widely regarded everywhere as one of the greatest composers who ever lived. Um, from the beginning, there was always some discussion of the fact that Wagner was anti-Semitic. It was serious, seriously anti-Semitic. But, um, you know, my friends in the opera world were, uh, you know, there were many Jews and they had all kind of made accommodation with that. And they said that it was it was not in the in the art. It was, it was sort of they drew this dichotomy kind of bad man with regrettable prejudices, but great art. And everybody was able to kind of adapt to that. And so I did too. So I just didn't, you know, I didn't really uh, think there was that much of an issue. I mean, there were a lot of people who were very, the, oh, also the, the, the Wagner got very much exploited by um, Hitler and Nazism. So that became an issue as well. But again, Everybody was able to draw these distinctions. And again, Jews are all everywhere in the worlds of music and opera, including Wagner. That, you know. So I just, you know, just it was just fine. But, um, you know, and I fast forward to my sort of early period of my coming to grips with being gay. And uh, I met my life partner, Arnie Kantrowitz, who was a very noted and even legendary gay activist, early gay, pioneering gay activist, and who was very uh, in touch with his Jewishness. I mean, uh, just didn't have any pathology there at all. And I brought him home to my apartment, and on my living room wall, there were five pictures of Wagner. Well, he didn't have a problem with Wagner. He had some Wagner recordings in his collection and all of that. He loved the overture to Tannhauser. But he couldn't resist sort of having 
he had a terrific sense of humor. He said, hmm, he said, why don't you put a picture of Anita Bryant up? <laughs> In other words, it struck him as odd that this Jewish guy would have all these pictures of Wagner, even though Wagner was, you know, was great. I mean, you know, uh, was a great composer and everybody recognized that. And it, it was just at this exact kind of moment that I was falling in love with him and it kind of opened up this whole panorama of kind of seeing myself in a way that I never had before. Well, this issue of kind of looking at my Jewishness in relation to Wagnerism just kept growing. It got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it sort of occupied its own trajectory for the rest of my life. And this became a subject of my books. I developed a close relationship with Wagner's great-grandson, Gottfried Wagner, who's um, the only Wagner family member who really kind of uh, was became a serious, really outspoken critic of the Wagner family and its collaborations with Hitler and Nazism, uh, something I hadn't mentioned before. That was very serious kind of check. So the, and also in the, in the more modern period now, we know we, this business of separating the art from the man we realize is, is, is much more fraught and complicated than we thought. Uh, it really kind of permeates the operas. It's kind of all in the texts and in this, and the plots and in the characterizations. And so, um, the the controversies have not gone away they just uh, gone away they just kind of keep growing and they've reached a kind of peak in the recent period with um, alex ross the new yorker music critic has spent much of his major independent work time putting together a book that's had a big impact called wagnerism that came out like last year about a year a year ago and it's very scholarly and it's got wonderful ideas in it. And he's very frank about the anti-Semitism and all of this. But when all is said and done, it's really just towing the same line of kind of Wagner apologism and codependence. And so I find myself really the only Jewish Wagnerite that I know of anywhere in the world who Many Jews, as I say, are involved with Wagner, and they're outspoken critics of Wagner, and they resent their, they're really upset about Wagner's anti-Semitism and all that. But no one, none of them has gone kind of the distance that I have in saying, this is really uncomfortable to the point of being kind of unacceptable to me personally. I'm not in favor of censorship. I'm not in favor of the you know, I still acknowledge that Wagner was a great composer, but I don't really want to keep subjecting myself to that. I'm not crazy. I mean, I can I still hear a Wagner, you know, performance or, a, you know, a singer or something like that. And I, I don't have a, 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 a weird reaction. I can even appreciate it. It can seem good. But basically, I really said that this sort of status quo of Wagnerism, where it is now, is really, it's it's more trouble than I'm comfortable with. And I would like to see the whole subject opened up 
more than it has been. And the world of opera and Wagner, this is something most people have no idea about, is absolutely sick of this discussion. They really want this whole thing to just be over with. Do you know, are you, do you, are you an opera person at all at any level, Sarah? Uh, I'm, just, if not, I'm okay. not totally a fan of opera, but I do have oh. a degree in music. So I generically know some of what you're talking about. All right. Well, let me, let me just, um, kind of at least get to this one point so um you know the uh the marriage uh ceremonies are often conducted with here comes the bride da, 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 da. that's Wagner that's from Lohengrin so you can't there's no remote possibility of extricating Wagner, his popularity, his his influence uh, in the world. I mean, nobody is really looking to do that. I don't, in fact, have any simple or easy answers, but I felt that, that the whole experience was sufficiently powerful and singular that I needed to tell my story. Sometimes a person just needs to tell their story, even if it doesn't seem in sync with what others are doing or what others want or they don't want or you know so let me stop there for a moment and uh <laughs> if we could take a breath <laughs> yeah and i i think it's great to hear that you know while your your thoughts might be different than others like sharing your story is is important to you so what is it that got you into writing the books that you've written well, uh, this is this goes back to this business of of what's basically your subject introducing me, where a lot of us who just don't fit into neat categories. So there's this whole Wagner thing that we've been talking about nonstop up until now. But I'm also a physician, and I'm a physician and a writer, and I've been an activist, a, a health activist and physician. I'm um, best known in my communities and more widely known as the first person to write about AIDS in the press. I was the very first person who wrote a news report on AIDS. Um, and I'm a co-founder of Gay Men's Health Crisis, which was the first and still the premier uh, AIDS information service organization. Um, I've written a lot about health about gay health, about health more generally. Um, I've written a lot about culture. So I'm this sort of, uh, I'm, I'm a physician, I'm a health activist, I'm also a writer. I was telling somebody the other day, I remember in the early days of the, of the AIDS epidemic, I was having dinner with someone and I was trying to kind of figure out how am I going to do all this, be a writer and a physician at the same time. And she kind of stirred the pot uh, by saying, and, and she meant it very, she was a warm person and, she, and she's insightful and she meant it, uh, I think with a lot of good rules. She said, Larry, she said, when are you gonna be a real, why don't you stop all this, all this writing that you're doing, all this activism and stuff like that and be a real doctor, like a community doctor. So these, these are, 
my struggles. I go back to your interview with Lee, where he kept having to figure ways to explain himself so that, you know, people saw these different aspects and things that didn't seem to go together. And he would try to say, well, this is who I am and this is how I am. So I feel that that's been an issue for me my entire life in every aspect of my life. I am often doing work in areas or doing things that seem to be incongruous or discordant to with what people expect, with what their expectations are. Like, well, you're this physician. What is this opera stuff? You know, this background opera. What is that? You know, and so there's a lot of of things that don't fit neatly together. And it hasn't really been, and, and you know, I mean, frankly, I've met a lot of closed doors in my life because of this. I feel a little bit like Lee, but I also feel like, you know, ultimately I had to find a way to be, ways to be true to myself. Um, and that journey has really, in many ways, been the bigger journey of my life. Like, how do you go through all these things and 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 still find a way to kind of ways to kind of validate who you are. So at some point in this journey, I stopped saying, you know, maybe the problem is not entirely me. Maybe I, of course, I have to do more work to kind of put myself out there and express myself and explain myself. But maybe, you know, um, I'm just an unusual character and um, doesn't mean that I'm uh, bad or a failure. I had my own uh, uh, experience that was progressive uh, through my career um, of, uh, you know, being in recovery. Recovery has been hugely helpful to me. At the same time that I've had this, so in addition to Wagner, opera, AIDS, Jewish, gay, um, I ended up my field in medicine, my field of expertise in medicine is addiction medicine. I'm recently retired, but that is my specialty. That's a relatively new uh, young specialty in medicine, addiction medicine. It's currently under the auspices of preventive medicine. But so my experience in medicine, in addiction medicine, very much informed my view of a lot of things, uh, including how I saw what was happening in the worlds of Wagner and Wagnerism. And as well, uh, I was going through my own experience of uh, of addiction and recovery, which has uh, been uh, progressive at the same time as, uh, as I was doing all these other things and all this other work. So um, I, you know, I don't fit as neatly into categories, single categories as maybe I should, or many people would like. I mean, I, you know, I think, <laughs> You know, I, I was looking over the other day, all the things that I write about. I mean, I, there's just so many different areas. And it never occurred to me that that's something, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, to be grateful for and to honor and to, you know, have pride in. Uh, rather, it's something I feel that I need to keep explaining, apologizing for. Um, I mean, I've got I've gotten some real recognition. I mean, I, that's that's not entirely fair. I'm not really a total victim. I, I have had some real success and 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 recognition uh, for who I am, and I'm grateful for that. Um, by the way, if people want to know a little bit more about me, I just want to refer them to my website, which is still under construction, but it's lawrencedmass.com, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-D-M-A-S-S.com. And um, they can find out a little bit more about my books and about my, my life and, uh, and so on. I will make sure to leave your website in the description so people can definitely go find out that more information there. Now, I want to know, you know, you've talked about all these identities that you have and the different things you're passionate about. What has it been like being an activist? Well, again, that was uh, that was uh, maybe, you know, the pinnacle of this conflictedness because I was an activist. I was a practicing physician, and I was struggling also to be a writer, to, to write about, uh, cover the AIDS epidemic as a journalist. I ended up doing that for the gay press, which was an unremunerated position. It was a fledgling little marginal community newspaper and organization, and uh, we were just all pitching in as we could. So being... Um, being an activist presented a number of conflicts and ended up having what's called a nervous breakdown, <laughs> not helped by the drinking that was escalating at that time. Um, I was hospitalized with a major depressive episode in the spring of 1983. And the basis of the Mickey Marcus character and Larry Kramer's uh, play, The Normal Heart, which uh, is also a film. But, um, you know, I, a lot of issues and problems with that fictionalized character, but um, we won't, uh, uh, you know, um, anyway, uh, that was a kind of pinnacle of the conflicts in my life of wanting to do and be all these different things and not really being able to figure out what to do or how to do, to make choices and to, you know, um, I mean, I, I, uh, if I, if I remember thinking, if I can't write, I will die. And, um, you know, um, but that's not what happened. I, you know, I, I could, I couldn't, I needed to earn a living. I mean, that was one thing I also needed to get a paycheck. I needed to pay my rent, you know. How was I going to work all these things out? How was I going to do all these things? And it just was, uh, I was overwhelmed. And being overwhelmed about options and choices is something I feel I've struggled with all my life and continue to struggle with. I've been hugely helped uh, with recovery, 12-step recovery, um, which has really uh, helped me do the sort of nitty-gritty daily in and out work of setting priorities, making choices, 
being able to live with, you know, disappointments, setbacks, accepting my life on my life's terms, uh, you know, trying to do the right thing, taking things as they come. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm in an infinitely better place uh, with all of this. But um, being an activist, I think, you know, uh, is in my nature. Uh, being a social and political activist is in my nature. The only place that I really kind of did this in a way that was, you know, had, had a bigger impact was with health issues and not just AIDS. It was also gay health more generally and, uh, uh, and, and health more generally, addiction, uh, cancer, hepatitis C. I did some kind of pioneering writing about hepatitis C which became, uh, which wasn't being recognized or dealt with uh, before they had um, curative treatment as they do now. So um, I'm someone, you know, I, 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 I like to be, uh, I like to be someone who is discovering trends or, you know, things that are happening and talk about them against the grain, kind of in a time and a place where people don't agree with that, they don't see it my way. And so I'm always, you know, again, the outsider, queer, Jewish, writer, physician, whatever it is I have been doing, I've always been the outsider. And I no longer, uh, I, I see that now as a kind of uh, insignia of honor, because I think that I've done a lot with that. Uh, but it's still there. I mean, I'm still I still tend to react to things as as the outsider and uh, uh, from 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 that vantage point. But uh, that's who I am. And uh, so you talked a lot about being an outsider there with all of these different identities. So can you share a little bit of what I'm hoping is some moments where you have felt included? Included. Yes. <laughs> wow. Um, well, um, I think there have been many moments of feeling included, but not for the broader range of who I am. One, well, one moment came the other day from my closest friend, who um, um, is another addiction medicine professional, uh, not a physician, but uh, he's also retired, but um, very dear friend, fellow Georgian, by the way, from Georgia. And um, just casually, he he was, I was tell, talking about my insecurity about doing these podcasts and this kind of thing. And because I had come from all these different backgrounds and I have all these different, and he just, uh, he's, he's, he's really, in many ways, my closest friend, and he just mentioned all the different things that I am and that I'm doing. And, you know, in a way, uh, in a manner of affirmation, 
that's pretty rare. I mean, people, most of the people that I interact with, I'm, I'm interacting with them on some level of compartmentalization. They are, they relate to me as Larry, the gay and AIDS activist, or the, you know, Dr. Larry from gay men's health crisis, Dr. Larry from addiction, you know, they, and then the, uh, they may or may not know much about the Wagner stuff, the opera, they might've heard about it, but, you know, so I'm, I'm relating to people in all these different compartments to have a friend like Joel say, mention all these different things and with regard and awareness. And, you know, it was just a, something uh, so special. Um, you know, uh, otherwise, though, that kind of uh, full recognition of kind of who I am and is is pretty unusual even now. I mean, I, I get uh, I'm, I'm more in the press these days because, um, well, um, we, we some months ago, we, we celebrated the 40th anniversary of AIDS. And because I was very involved in the early period of AIDS, uh, and you know there was a there were a lot of interviews and things like that. Um, but it was all it was almost all about AIDS and about you know I mean those people by and large are not that interested in this other stuff which they see as more avocational. And um, you know another example that comes to mind that's not what you asked for it's kind of the opposite because thought that those are the examples i have is i have a colleague uh in my jewish wagnerism work and writing who's actually a very eminent scholar and i sent my the manuscript of my book to him uh to see if i could get an advanced blurb and the book is kind of it's all me. It's all this, these different compartments, all these different subjects. You know, this is, it's a narrative of me and my life. So he picked up the book. The book has got, you know, Wagner and opera and AIDS and hepatitis C and gay sex and gay life and Jews. And, um, you know, it's got, it's got, you know, like 15 different categories. And he said, you know, he just, instinctively felt that there were a bunch of different narratives and they didn't really belong together. And my reaction, which I think was a healthy one, is that, you know, they may not seem to belong together, but in fact, in my life and my narrative, they have belonged together. So these disparate elements that you know, if you're if you're a screenwriter or a novelist or something like that, so you can't really do that. You can't be talking about, you know, these things are completely, you know, your family and AIDS and, you know, addiction and, you know, um, it just was uh, too, it just seemed like, you know, there, it's unnatural to go together in a book, not that there can't be legitimate criticism of a book. I mean, I am discursive, I am inclusive, I am sprawling, I mean, those, those but it just seemed whenever I, I encounter that rejection, that kind of rejection, which has been pretty much global in my literary career, I take it personally. And 
I internalize, I've always internalized that as a reflection of kind of, well, they must really be right. You know, I must really be doing things wrong. All this stuff, there's something wrong here, you know. And it's only with time and recovery and perseverance and so that I've learned to really believe in myself and say, you know, if they can't see the threads of relatedness of all these things, or you know, many of them or most of them, maybe, maybe the problem is them and not me. Um, well, I mean, any writer will tell you they want to have an audience, and one the the best way to get an audience, uh, at least theoretically, is to appeal to the most people. So it's understandable. You want to pare down what you have to say. You want to make it accessible. You don't want to get too overloaded. You don't want people to feel oppressed by, by what you're doing. But beyond a certain point, if that's compromising who you really are and what you really have to say and what you really have to offer the world, then it is a problem. I mean, sometimes you have to ask the world to accept, you know, a certain amount of clunkiness. And, you know, as I said, well, you know, it's sort of like, oh, I could imagine them sort of talking, wow, that one's got a lot of baggage. Look at all that stuff. He's, you know, that's really, that's more than we really want to deal with. And okay, I can kind of sympathize with that, but I can't sort of be someone I'm not which just brings us back to your interview with Lee that so moved me. I mean, uh, it just was clear, you know, he kept coming back to these uh, entry points of, you know, he couldn't not be who he was. And beyond a certain point, he couldn't compromise who he was. It wasn't about being difficult. It wasn't about being, you know, uh, uh, you know, narcissistic, or, you know, it, it was about he had to be true to himself. And that's been my own journey. Yeah, and I think, you know, those conclusions that you were coming to that you were talking about, you know, and, and the accepting of oneself and realizing like that it's, it's not you, it's, you know, other people need to realize that you have all these facets and, and that that's okay. I think that's truly great. So what is it that you are currently working on and hoping for the future in your retirement? Well, um, my partner of 40 years, this, this uh, wonderful uh, writer and activist, legendary figure in the gay community, Arnie Kantowitz, he died from complications of COVID um, in January. And we had a couple of wonderful memorial services for him. We're going to be spreading his ashes shortly. And I see, I'm, I'm 75 now, so I, I will soon be 76. I see devoting a lot of my time and energy to processing our papers and memorabilia. Both of our collections of papers are with the New York Public Library the, uh, in, in long-term collections. And um, so I, I want to do that. I also want to, want to keep, uh, promoting my books, the two books, my two books, the uh, the earlier memoir is called Confessions of a Jewish Wagnerite, Being Gay and Jewish in America. 
and it has a foreword by Gottfried Wagner, the great grandson of the composer, who I've had a 40-year friendship and correspondence with. And then the, the current collection, uh, continuing this narrative, the sequel to this memoir, is called On the Future of Wagnerism, Art, Intoxication, Addiction, Codependence, and Recovery. So it's sort of like, there you have the Larry Master Lemon. You, 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 look, you look at that title and you look at the subtitle and say, oh, you know, what... You know, aren't these really different areas and different things? And um, but um, I, it because of my immersion in the world of addiction, both personally and professionally, um, I've come to see I've come to see many things through lenses of addiction, and the world of Wagnerism lends itself to these perspectives like nothing else in art. There is nothing comparable to the cult, cultism of Wagnerism that um, is out there. It is absolutely singular. It is truly impressive. And there are many aspects of addiction um, that are pertinent to observing what goes on in that world and what the concerns are about it. Um, and, um, you know, I talk about these things, uh, not only technically, but uh, also personally, as I've experienced them in my life. And as, but um, also with regard to my own life experience and my family, issues of uh, intoxication, addiction, and especially codependence. Codependence is, remember I told you about putting the five pictures of Wagner on the wall? That's codependence. It's when you are kind of, overcompensating or you know you're it's too much you know you're you know what what is that that you're doing it's sort of like somebody treats you badly and so you treat them all the better someone uh you know shames you or insults you and you end up you know being even nicer and you know to them sometimes codependent behavior is just love and it's 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 a good thing. It's 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 wisdom. It's it's not always a bad thing, but sometimes it's conspicuous. Like, what is this? I mean, that I that I loved Wagner was one thing, but this Jewish Wagnerite with five pictures of Wagner. And stuff, I mean, I was totally in love with Wagner. I mean, it was like the first great love of my life, and the whole thing was like there was you know, it was clinical. In retrospect, I, uh, that's a term we use in medicine. It was clinical. It was like something you'd write up in a, in a psychiatric textbook, even though on the surface it all seemed kind of, you know, normal. I mean, everybody in the opera, you know, reveres Wagner. And, uh, but, and that, that, you know, got, got me going on my journey. So uh, of, of talking about these things at a level that they really are not otherwise being talked about or um, so um, I was asked the other day, you know, what's going to be your next book? I don't have a next book. Um, the, my little sort of dirty secret about Wagner and that, is that um, he continues to be my muse in a way. And in other words, for all of my kind of, you know, uh, criticism and 
sort of looking at this world very, you know, uh, in terms of pathology and everything, uh, I, it, somehow uh, my immersion in this subject uh, continues to stimulate me as an observer and as a writer. So I, I, I do not see myself writing another Wagner, Wagnerism book, but I, I, I don't really know. You know, I probably will continue to do some writing and it'll probably be a mix of things like it always has been. Medicine, culture, music, opera, maybe some, even some more Wagner, I don't know. Now, I am curious, since you obviously have all of these passions, what sort of like official degrees and studying have you done? Well, I'm an MD. I'm a physician. Um, I uh, received my MD in 1973 from uh, University of Illinois, Abraham Lincoln School of Medicine. I did my residency in anesthesiology. Um, at Massachusetts General Hospital in association with Harvard Medical School. That was 73 to 76. And then uh, uh, that's when I that's when I realized that I wanted two things more than anything else in the world. I wanted to move to New York from Boston. <laughs> Boston was not home. New York was always home. I always knew that. And I finally I got there. And I wanted to write, and I wanted to write about a whole range of things. By the way, I used to write about opera when I was much younger, and I was universally discouraged by my opera friends. I, I never got encouragement for any of this work from any of my opera friends. This was my world, my sort of subculture. I think they, you know, they just thought I was, you know, I, I, they, they didn't think I had any talent. They didn't like what I had to say. They, um, you know, they were discouraging. They were just, you know, uh, I mean, they're, they're <laughs> so, uh, and these are things that I, you know, I look at in my, in my own writing. I don't feel any bitterness uh, about it. But I, I do think the opera world is one that um, invites a level of scrutiny that it doesn't often get. It's a, it's a kind of a strange world, and it's a, a bit troubled in, in various ways. There's much that's good about it. It's very kind of archaic. I mean, if you think about opera, you think, oh, geez, it's like going to the museum, you know, these, these, uh, it's, it, it's, um, you know, but anyway, so, but I've, I've done a lot of writing about all this now. I've kind of had my say and, um, you know, I do want to continue to try to put it out there. I mean, uh, this podcast today is, uh, is an opportunity to try to do that. And, um, so that's, oh, you asked, so in terms of degrees, well, I, I was in the first, um, group of physicians to um, become uh, we, 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 uh, board certified in addiction medicine. Um, that whole process of board certification is something that kept graduating because uh, it was a, it's a new field and uh, it may be a different uh, 
uh, set up now, but uh, in preventive medicine. But um, so I was uh, I was an undergrad at the University of California at Berkeley. I graduated in the class of 1969 with honors in my uh, major, which was English. And um, there, my senior honors thesis was on the romantification of the Shakespeare operas, of, of Shakespeare's plays by Verdi in his three Shakespeare operas. It was a pretty, you know, uh, pretty substantial uh, thing that I did, you know. Uh, but again, not having, uh, not, the world, the world of opera, I mean, it, it, it's basically, it's about fandom, it's about very superficial levels of communication and, and group experience. They don't want, by and large, they don't want heaviness, you know, and the world of, you know, they, they don't want people who are, you know, getting too, uh, I mean, like all my work on Wagnerism and anti-Semitism and all that stuff, they're, they're, they're really, Opera is kind of a, it's a, it's a group bonding spiritual experience. It's got its own kind of language and magic. The 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 worlds of politics and uh, uh, social concerns and all these things are are frequently very unwelcome. I mean, they are present. They you know. Uh, um, you know, if you if you go to many places, they do these sort of deconstructive modern productions of operas, you know, where and including Wagner, where their settings are in Nazi Germany and this kind of thing, you know, but it's it's still that the, the rules of involvement and belonging and participation and recognition are still pretty stodgy and kind of old fashioned. Well, I appreciate you sharing uh, your your degrees there. I, th I think it's fascinating to kind of hear how people uh, navigate their interests when they're younger and, and what that has all turned into. So before I wrap things up, is there anything else that you would like to share with the listeners today? Um, just the, the general uh, wisdom that I think is it, your, your, your show is really all about with and the, the subject is that, you know, believe in yourself, be true to yourself. This is something you hear all over the place all the time, but it takes, it can take a lifetime for you to realize how true it is. And that's my experience. It feels like it's taken a lifetime for me to see that, that it's true, that I can really value myself and honor myself and show up for myself. It might seem like I did a lot of these things, you know, I was doing it all along, but in terms of really feeling it, um, that has been a, a progressive uh, development. And um, I urge everybody to do it all, you know, don't, don't, don't give up on yourself, your dreams, your, your visions, your, your beliefs, uh, you know, cherish them. That is some great wisdom to share. Now with all of my guests at the end, I do ask a random question. 
My question today is simply, when are you most productive? At 4.30 a.m. I'm a morning person. And that's my pattern. I wish I could sleep more. Uh, but uh, when, when, when I found myself having to uh, earn, I realized I was going to have to work for the rest of my life. I wanted to do my writing more than anything else. I thought I would die if I couldn't. But I realized I had to work. I had to have a day job. And I, I did that. And um, the only way I was going to be able to do my writing was the extremely difficult challenge of do, carving out early morning time before I went to work to get my writing done. It was a monumental uh, commitment, but it's, you know, either it was either do or die. And I chose to do, and that's been the trajectory of my life. Uh, and that is my special time that still, I'm not working now, but I still get up at four, uh, you know, I'm at the typewriter by, I mean, I'm at the computer by 4.30. And um, that's my, my secret time and space. All right, that brings this episode to a close. As I mentioned, I will be leaving Larry's website in the description. So that brings you to all of the great things that he's doing. So lots of links within that website and lots of good information there. So feel free to go check all of that out and his newest book that he talked about as well. And of course, if you would like to connect with the podcast, our website is also in the description. That brings you to all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. It brings you to all of our past websites, all of the resources from past guests and everything good there. And if you'd like to connect with me or be a guest on the podcast, the email is also in the description along with a link to support the podcast monetarily if you would like to do that. So thank you, Larry, so much for spending time with me today and to my listeners for the taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Bye, Sarah. Thanks so much. Bye.